0: Bible, and uh, in reading it, I'd like us to once again pick up on this theme of the light of Christmas, which is our theme uh, for Advent, which culminates on Christmas Eve, and uh, I'd like us to follow along now as I read John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John, and he came for a witness, that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. And He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and, his, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Lord, may you, by your Spirit, illumine this text for us, that we might see and understand Christ more clearly, and find hope and encouragement through the Gospel, and we pray that you might do so in a way, Lord, that prevents anybody here from living a life or being, uh, uh, being caught up in a life of darkness. May the light of Christ be seen. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'll start off with a question to get you to think a little bit. Uh, The Gospel of John has a reason as to why the Apostle composed it. Just curious if you might happen to know that particular reason. And uh, if you know anything about the book, it's found at the back of that particular Gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. John tells us very clearly why he wrote his Gospel And the answer is this. He said, These things have been written, that is, this gospel has been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So John is specifically written with an evangelistic purpose. John is trying to convince his readers as they look at the the assortment of evidence to convince them to respond in such a way that they surrender and that they fully trust in Jesus Christ as Son of God and Savior. Now we shouldn't be too surprised then if that is the purpose of this book, that John would begin his book and continues throughout his book to pile on so much interesting, crucial facts about Jesus that he's trying to convince his readers as to the identity of Jesus An identity that is so compelling, it would compel us, therefore, to trust Him, surrender to Him, and to follow Him. And so you'll notice some interesting facts we learn about Jesus from chapter 1. I'm just going to briefly summarize some of these. There's so many in here, I don't have time to explore them all. But beginning with, among other things we learn about Jesus, in verse 1, we know that Jesus is eternal. We know that Jesus is equal with God, which indicates that there is a sense of the Trinity here. He shares fellowship with the Father, verse 18 and verse 1. He is God in human flesh, verse 14, verse 1. Uh, The creator of everything that exists. He is the self-existent one, which is what we think verse 4 means. In him was life. In other words, no one imparted life to him. He always had life in him. He is the self-existent one. And John includes an abundance of other reasons why Jesus is the unique anointed one sent by God. He's trying to to convince his readers that, that no one else comes close to his qualifications and credentials. Now, a little parenthesis here. Let me just say, if you're a person that's looking at the Christian faith and thinking about it as a person who's still trying to understand it, that we understand that faith is not biblical faith is not a blind leap into the dark no one in the scriptures ever is encouraging someone to say well i have no idea what i'm believing in but i'm just going to make some sort of uh uh, random state state uh uh, jumping into into some sort of faith and and may i'll just trust jesus because i don't know any other other thing to do no not at all faith is built upon facts and if you read the Gospel of John and the other Gospel writers, it's very clear that they are including in them compelling eyewitness testimony. And I'll give you an example, just real quickly here, chapter 19, verse 35. Just an example of how John is trying to show eyewitness testimony here. That he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may also believe. So John is saying that there is evidence here supporting the premise that Jesus is qualified to impart the gift of eternal life. And that Jesus is uniquely qualified. He's set apart from anyone and everyone else. Now, that's all just a matter of introduction, but I want us to focus now on verse 4. John 1, verse 4. One of the messianic characteristics that Jesus about Jesus that John highlights is this statement that he says, Jesus is the light of men. In introducing this as Jesus as the light of men, John, it seems to me, is emphasizing the fact that Jesus is one who illuminates for the human race the realities of the spiritual realm. That here is someone who is now going to make clear what has not really been fully clear before regarding the spiritual realm. And Jesus is uniquely qualified to do that. He can speak accurately. He speaks clearly with insights about the spiritual realities. Why? Because he is God who has always existed, who has assumed and taken on human flesh. And now he's speaking as God among humans. And because he came to earth and took on human flesh, therefore mankind... To some degree, prior to that time in which he came, on, took, came and took on human flesh, mankind was living in the spiritual shadows, long shadows of things that weren't really that clear regarding spiritual realities. There was a lack of full understanding regarding the realm of what all is true in the spiritual realities that only God can reveal to us. And so my goal this morning is to answer three different questions Please don't get lost in your notes. I don't like the outline. It's just, I was trying to use alliteration to one of those weeks. You just skip the outline. It may, not, it may not help you, but if it does, that's fine. But I'm going to try to answer these three questions this morning. In what way is Jesus' unique ministry, in which he reveals things as the light? He is revealing truth. In what way is his ministry unique? Secondly, I want to answer the question, what did Jesus reveal about the nature of Christ-honoring ministry? And thirdly, because Jesus, as the one who came to reveal spiritual truth, has always faced opposition, in what way is it accurate to say that his illuminating illuminating ministry was never overcome by the darkness? His light prevailed and does so today. All right, I'm going to answer those questions, try to. Let's uh, follow along here. Number one, if you're going to fill in your notes, if you will, but it may not help you. But anyway, the first point is the revealing light of Christ's ministry. The revealing light of Christ's ministry. Here we learn in verse 9, Jesus is the true light, the genuine light, which coming into the world enlightens every man, every person. You see, Jesus did not come revealing truth about the spiritual realities to just a limited, small subsection of people, privileged people who are given this esoteric knowledge and and they're the insiders and everybody else is sort of left in the dark. But no, but Jesus is the genuine light. He's the one who brings a ministry of revelation that was meant to be taught. It was meant to be understood far and wide among all the nations of the world. That's clearly taught in Scripture, that the whole idea of Jesus coming was not just so a very small number of people would know these things, but that it would be manifest, proclaimed, and spread to all of the peoples of the earth. Every people group needs to know the one and true God. And that God who revealed Himself in human flesh, Jesus Christ, this Jesus has come and He's revealed the true God. And Therefore, it's it's important that we understand Jesus was meant to be the revealer for all people, of all the human race of every century of time. Around the world, you'll find people worshiping something or someone. Some people worship statues, for example, of Buddha. Other people worship rivers and trees and prophets and angels and sacred places. And some people treasure human wisdom, and they follow wholeheartedly and devote themselves to secular philosophies that try to explain life apart from God, and therefore they themselves become their own source of truth, and they sort of worship themselves. But we all worship something or someone. But what's unique about Jesus is he's coming and he's telling us that his knowledge— about spiritual realities is something we should be carefully, uh, closely noticing. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, just real quickly. Let me show you something about another parallel, if you will, of what John is trying to say here in his gospel. The writer of Hebrews, we don't know who that writer is. He does not identify himself. And there's 16 theories as to who it might be, so I'm not going to solve that problem for you. But look at how he starts this book. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long before, long ago, sorry, to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So God had been speaking through the prophets prior to the time Jesus had come. Excuse me. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. And this Son, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the exact representation of his nature. I find it interesting that in this passage, he uses some very unique, never used words before or or any other time in all of the Bible. In chapter in verse three, he talks about Jesus as being the brightness of God's glory. He is shining forth. He is radiating with the glory of God, uniquely. Jesus is God. So therefore He is the light of man. And therefore, There's a difference between the the radiance that Christ had versus the radiance that you and I uh, might have or someone may claim who is just a mere human. It's the difference between a sun and the moon, right? The moon, I walk in the morning, and so I'll oftentimes uh, get up now where it's dark. I'm outside, and it's amazing what you can see in the the sky. Uh, There's been Venus, I guess, and some other planet on either side of a full moon the other night. And uh, just beautiful. But the glory of that moon is a secondary glory. Why? Because the moon is reflecting the glory of one who is producing that glory. A glory that is radiating from the sun with energy that is, uh, and heat energy and light energy that's coming out as a source of this incredible glorious star at the center of our solar system. The point I'm trying to say here is that Jesus himself is divine. He is the perfect manifestation of God, And when Jesus came and he lived among us as God, what did he make clear? What did he reveal about spiritual realities? Well, one he revealed is he revealed what holiness and what a righteous life looks like. No one prior to that time had ever lived a perfectly righteous life. No one prior to that time had lived a perfect holy life other than Jesus Christ. And so when, tra- when Jesus then revealed God's absolute purity and His sinless perfection, it became abundantly clear, compared to Jesus and His life, no human being measured up to the same moral standard. When Jesus revealed the Father to the human race, He exposed our works of darkness, And as fallen people, as imperfect people, we are accustomed to viewing the world from a perspective in which we don't view it with a righteous point of view. We don't look at the world from an absolutely holy. We're just mixing it with our darkness and light that somehow gives us our perspective. Years ago, when I was um, first here, we did some baptisms and began to notice that uh, our, our custom is to use baptismal robes. And so we do that just as a symbolism. Uh, they're white robes. And so we took the robes we had and, and uh, we noticed that some of them were starting to uh, be in tattered condition. And so we ordered some new ones. And what a change. When we hold it, held up the old ones, which were white, and you held them up to the new one, guess what? The old ones looked gray and dingy and dirty and disgusting and too old to use anymore. And so we got rid of those. And so we now have some ones that are at least some, some level of white to them. The similar is true in the spiritual realm. When Jesus came among us, we saw what holiness looks like in its pure in form. And you compare that to all the other humans, of course, we assume prior to that, I mean, without that kind of example, we would say to ourselves, well, you know, I'm not as bad as other people. I mean, we really think we're better than we really are. And you look at John chapter 3, just a couple of chapters over in the gospel. If you look at verse 19, John gives us and provides us a reason why the revealing light that Jesus brought regarding his own righteous and holy life, why it's not so widely accepted, why it's not popular, why it's not respected. Look at verse 19. This is the judgment. The light, that is Jesus, in revealing what God is truly like in his righteous and holy life, has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Why would they love the darkness? Why wouldn't they love the light? And the answer, for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And that's why I put the quote in your notes there from Packer, it says, men are opposed to God in their sin and God is opposed to man in his holiness. Let me just say again, for many of you, I'm sure this is familiar territory, but the first step to become a Christian is to humbly admit our own unworthiness, to humbly admit that we have a moral poverty before God. Many religious people love to celebrate the merits of their human goodness. They love to compare themselves, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, they love to compare themselves with themselves. <laughs> you know, hey, I'm not as bad as that guy. You know, they love to make them st- themselves the standard of what they're compared to. And they love to defend themselves by citing quote-unquote evidence that they're not as high up on the scale of moral corruption as other notorious sinners who are way up here. Well, I'm just right here, you know. I'm a five, and the scale goes up here to ten. Here's Hitler. You know, I'm only up here to two or three, you know. So they love to play that game of creating the scale of, not- of notorious sinners. But Jesus, in revealing the accurate spiritual realities about God and His nature and how we stand up to perfect holiness, every person who takes to heart His revelation, no matter what their culture, no matter what their background, they are made aware of one clear thing. They are desperately in need of a gospel of grace. They are desperately in need of a substitute who will provide us a means of offering to God a payment on their behalf to atone or to somehow make right this debt we owe to a holy God to offer this payment of debt we owe to a God that what that we and every person of the world who will repent and believe that we would be able to therefore be forgiven by God and welcomed into him welcomed by him into fellowship with him through there's only one way, Jesus Christ. That's why John made such a big deal. He so here comes Jesus. He's the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29. May I say one more thing before I move on to the next one? It's not just the negative things about Jesus' revelation and His coming, His revealing ministry. He also reveals to us the love of God. John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. You'll never understand the love of God till you look at the cross, till you look at what Jesus did for people who were unworthy, who were his enemies. And I'd like to also just add another thought here about Jesus and his revealing of what a righteous life looks like. And I'm going to build this off of an illustration from Christianity Explored. How many of you are familiar with Christianity Explored Do you know about the illustration of the room, the museum room that has a listing of on all of the sides and walls. Uh, he lists a record of everything about yourself. So you have the Mark Musser room. God help us. Mark Bishop Musser room. And in this particular room, you would find little notices about the time I had the newspaper picture, of me and the local, local paper when a tree fell down in our front yard. I don't know why they came and took my picture standing by that tree, but that was a big deal in my life. And so I thought that was a big deal when I was growing up. Well, look at me. I'm famous. <laughs> standing by a fallen tree. But there are many other things about my life I don't want you to know about. I wouldn't want anybody to know about. If everything I ever thought, if everything I ever said, if everything I ever did, but imagine that being plastered on all the walls in a museum for people just to walk through and look at. You say, oh, that is the hall of shame, the hall of guilt. And I would dread such a thing ever being on display. Well, that's where we are in our sin. Here's the gospel. The gospel says, not only is that true, that there is this incredible, long-listing and condemning record of sin, but the gospel of grace says, Jesus comes in and says, I have authorized that that be painted over entirely. So you don't see any more of that listing of what you've done wrong. All you see is just, this is the hall of Mark B. Musser, the room of Mark B. Musser. But more than that, my friend... Then he comes back and says, I want to wallpaper this room in lovely, impressive, very fancy, very expensive wallpaper that has calligraphied, very fancily recorded, everything Jesus did in his holy and righteous life to obey the Father. It is now put up on all the walls for all to see. Jesus fully obeyed. Jesus always thought pure thoughts jesus only had love for his enemies jesus on and on and on and on all over those walls and that is the righteousness of jesus that is put onto my account or to your account if you truly believe and you truly repent that is the gospel of grace my friend and we celebrate that wonderful news all right um i want to look at point number two here uh, before i make that the entire sermon. Point number two is that there is a reflecting, the reflecting light of Christ. And this talks about what does it mean to have Christ-honoring ministry. The reflecting light of Christ-honoring ministry. The text in John 1 immediately goes into this John the Baptist section. And so we begin to hear about John the Baptist as one who Verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness. That keeps saying he's not the light, but to bear witness to the light. And we know John the Baptist is the greatest prophet. Why? Because as the last Old Testament prophet, he was the one who was the setup man. He was the advance man, if you will, for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He was the one who announced, Jesus is coming imminently. Prepare for his coming. And he's clarifying who Jesus is. He's clarifying what Jesus came to do. And look at that, if you will. He says there, to testify to the light. um, Verse 10, sorry. uh, Verse 7, he came for witness that John might bear witness of the light that all might believe through John. John came to bear witness so that by his witness about the light, people would come to faith in the light. You see that? Now, I don't have time to go into this either, but if you want to write in your notes, chapter 5, verse 35 of John's gospel, John was called a burning and shining lamp. What he's saying is is that John was like a flashlight (laughs) who was pointing people to the greatest light, the light that came from heaven, uh, the true light, he was one who kept trying to point people to Jesus, pointing people to Jesus, saying, listen, Jesus is the true Messiah. He is the only one who can save you from your sins. And so he was one who gave witness, bore witness to Jesus. And I would suggest to you that I think this is a wonderful summary that I think John the Baptist was doing, in a sense, that it had the privilege to do what you and I still have the privilege of doing. Verse 7 that we might bear witness to the light of Jesus Christ that all might believe through our witness. I don't think it's, fair, I don't think it's unfair to, to, to make that something that applies also to us. Now, I know John had a unique witness there. I don't debate that with you at all. But I think that we have a similar privilege of having a witness to Jesus and the gospel of grace. It's a privilege it comes at a cost. John's faithful witness to Christ did not end so um, pleasantly for him. He was arrested. And in some ways, we shouldn't be surprised that things were difficult for a faithful witness to the light. Why? Because since Jesus made known his father, and he revealed the fact that, therefore, there's this holy and righteous person, Jesus Christ, revealing what God is like, and therefore that we are not that way. Therefore, people, what? We see the corruption and moral poverty of the human race. We begin to understand that that Jesus is the exclusive provision by which ruined rebels can be transformed and, and elevated and lifted up to a position of privilege and acceptance before God. There's only one way to see that happen in somebody's life. It's not by saying what? I'm just going to put myself on the path of self-improvement or self-actualization or doing things, I think, or you know, random acts of kindness as if that's going to somehow make my life complete before God. It's not. But the more the witness goes out about the exclusive and limited provision of God, there's only one way to God. There's only one way to be right with God. It's through Jesus Christ. The more that we bear witness to that, we are viewed as highly offensive by many people who proudly boast of their self-righteous works. And therefore, faithful gospel ministry can result in widespread resentment and offense. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and following. In the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. That, mean, that means all the entrapment of, of all sorts of world religions, all sorts of philosophies, ideologies. They did not come to know God. But God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks and Gentiles, it is foolishness. But to those who are are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and wisdom of God. See, when John the Baptist confronted Herod Antipas, the Roman tetrarch of Galilee, regarding his marriage, when he started dealing with moral issues, guess what? I don't want to hear any more about you, John the Baptist. I'm arresting you. I'm putting you out in some prison out in the middle of the desert. I'm never going to hear from you again. Yes, he did silence him. And then there was some crazy party, if you remember, that took place. And some crazy request came out of nowhere from this woman uh, who danced and got the uh, Herod Antipas to make this crazy agreement. Anyway, he demanded to have John, she demanded to have John the Baptist's head on a plate. And sure enough, he was beheaded. The Apostle Paul and his faithful witness to the gospel was opposed what time after time with riotous crowds who tried to drown him out. Say, I don't want to hear what you're saying. They threatened him, they th- tried to stone him, they beat him, they put him in jail. Here's Jesus, the sinless Son of God, was hated. Because why? Oftentimes he was saying things and confronting self righteous people, exposing them for who they really were, using uh, questions. He was telling outrageous parables in order to help them see their need for a Savior. You see, gospel witness is not easy, but it is a privilege to speak about the light so that others may come to faith in that light through our simple, imperfect witness. But I'm telling you something, it comes with liabilities. It comes with losses. I'm thinking of an event that happened two years ago, about this time of the year, in which a member of my family, my extended family, made it known through an email that um, he had chosen to live a certain way and to make a certain choice and, and uh, wanted everybody to know about it. And so a number of us who are Christians and committed to Jesus Christ in my extended family, communicated with him by email and other ways. And several of them included a gospel witness reminding him of what really the issues are between him and a holy God and the need to trust Christ. And oh man... Here comes a zinger of an email saying, I am going to have nothing to do with any of you people if you don't stop all this guilt-producing, condemning, judgmental, da-da-da-da-da-da. I mean, it was just something we don't do in our family. It was painful. I remember sitting around the the, uh, kitchen table and all the members of my family who were there at the time, not everyone was there, but of my immediate family, we were all crying. It was very painful we love this person still love this person but let me tell you something when you speak truth to people who love sin it's offensive and they'll hate you for it and some people will reject you the bigger part of the story is that having expressed our thoughts and concerns we all sought him sought him out and spoke to him personally on the phone explained that our thoughts and concerns were such that we're not trying to continually <laughs> cause offense, but we just wanted to speak the truth in love. We still love him, da 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 So there was some measure of restoration in relationship, but boy, oh boy. It's like uh, we now are told uh, certain things will not be said any longer, and most of us, I guess, have followed that. Here's what my point is. What is required of a witness is to learn to lay down our rights. We don't have the right to an easy life if you're a witness to Christ. Look what John said in verse 27. John understands his proper role. He says, I'm not worthy to untie the shoestring on Jesus' shoe. I'm not worthy to untie the, the thong on his sandal. Verse 30 of chapter 3 of John's Gospel. Jesus, uh, John says, I, he must increase. I must decrease. It's not about me. <laughs> it's about Christ. If you look at the book of Acts as the story of Jesus commissioning his disciples, his apostles, to carry forth what he began, he says that the Holy Spirit's going to come and you as my followers, you're going to be my witnesses witness unto me. You're going to give testimony in the courtroom of the world about the evidences that point to me, the Savior, the Son of God, so that people can believe in my name and so that they might be saved. That was the sort of the understanding of of early on in Acts. And Christ, ever since then, is to be the subject of the gospel. It is Christ. It's not about us. It's not about our church. It's not about Christianity, quote unquote. It's about Christ. And so Christ is our theme. There is no other subject. There is no other theme. It is Christ. We are to speak about the light as faithfully as we can. Again, it's not popular to call people to self-denial. <laughs> That's part of the gospel, isn't it? Take up your cross daily. Follow me. It's not popular. It's not popular to call people to true repentance. Repentance. But I'll say this to you, Matthew 13, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. Treasure meaning the gospel. A man who found that treasure, he hid that treasure back in the field. And over the joy that he has, knowing that he's found this treasure, he does what? Goes out, he sells all that he has, and buys that field but the point is what? We can give up anything or everything for the great joy of finding and knowing Christ and becoming His child by faith. It's truly a treasure worth having. We'll take a loss in any other area just to have that. All right, uh, point number three here as we move along uh, real quickly here. I came up with the word robust. The light of gospel regeneration is a robust, a robust or durable, resilient, strong light of gospel regeneration. What in the world are you talking about here? Well, I want to look at verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Some translations say comprehend it. I think the better translation is overcome it. What he's alluding to here clearly is there's some opposition to the light, from darkness, And this gospel is widely rejected. There are people every day who are perishing because why? They reject Jesus. They reject his gift of eternal life. There is widespread unbelief. Examples are found throughout the scriptures. Look at verse 11 of the same chapter, chapter 1. Jesus came to his own people. His own people did not receive him, did not believe him. They turned away from him in large numbers. Apostle Paul, who repeatedly turned away from that gospel for years and years, but finally was confronted directly by Christ on his way to the road to Damascus, he provided a compelling gospel witness to all sorts of people, whether they were educated, uneducated, whether they were free or people still in bondage and were in that in that culture slaves, which is much different than the kind of slavery we had here in the West uh, in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, 20th century. But Whether they were people who were religious or irreligious, he would present the gospel to them. And Paul was trying to say, listen, I'm setting forth before you the light of Jesus Christ. And he knew that there was this opposition. There's this darkness against which the light is now being shown. And Paul tried to provide an explanation. Why is it that that gospel witness is so widely rejected? Would you turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians 4? 2 Corinthians 4, page 1375, your pew Bible. Stay with me. This is fascinating. You're going to see how this all fits together in this idea of this theme of light. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we read The God of this world, who do we understand that to be? Satan. Okay? The God of this world, small g, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. If you're blind, how much light do you see? There's complete darkness. Right? Has blinded the minds of them believing that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What he's saying here is that Satan loves to promulgate lies and half-truths. He spreads darkness by deception. How does he do it? In today's world he uses secular philosophy like humanism, or moral relativism—that says there are no absolutes. If you say if somebody says there are no there are no moral absolutes, that's making an absolute statement, which is a ridiculous statement. The point is that people who go around throwing these stuff around and saying, oh, "Okay, who are you to say you know what's right wrong? There are no moral absolutes." The point is there are moral absolutes, and everybody on some level. Uh, acts as if that is true. My point here is that this kind of moral relativism and secular philosophy like humanism, they pander to moral depravity and sinful mankind. Therefore, people buy into this stuff. Why? Because we don't want anybody telling us what to do with our life. I'll think of, my, I come up with my own answers. i live my own life. Thank you very much. I want to be my own standard. The widespread opposition to the gospel exists because why? 2 Timothy chapter 2. Unregenerate people have yet to come to their senses. Why is that? Because they have yet to escape from the snare of the devil who holds people captive. How does he do that? I think he does it through false ideologies, through false religion, all sorts of ways. He holds them captive to do his will they are blind they don't know why they're doing what they're doing they don't know any different now my question at this point is does that mean that satan and his forces of darkness have overcome christ in the gospel and john is saying very clearly in his gospel let me tell you something this light the light of christ being the revealer of truth and the gospel of grace that came through christ will never be overtaken by this darkness John 1 5 says, look what he says there. John 1 5 The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it, Amen. despite what it looks like in this world. Now, I walk around in this building sometimes when I'm leaving. There's nobody in the building, at least I don't think there is, and it's dark. I mean, it's, I don't leave the light on. I just walk down the hallway. When I'm leaving my study, I'll walk down this hallway, and I'll go get into my car over here sometimes. I don't turn the light on. It is dark. I have to put my hand on the wall sometimes just to make sure I don't bang into the bathroom uh, frame or whatever. Anyway, only one thing it takes to dispel that darkness. Turn the light on my key ring, and kaboom, I can see Everything. One little tiny light. If you come into this room, a massive room like this, suppose there's no lights on in the parking lot, okay? Suppose it's dark outside. It's really dark in here. One little candle, one little match, dispels all that darkness. Here's my point. Paul is insisting that God in his gospel overcomes the strong opposition of spiritual darkness. How? How? By the sovereign and supreme work of the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration. You said, Where did you get that? Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and look at verse 6. We saw in verse 4 of chapter, we saw in 2 Corinthians 4 4 that Satan blinds the minds, right? Now we're looking at two verses later. It says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Here's the overcoming light of the gospel by means of the Holy Spirit. Paul is alluding to the first chapter of Genesis. Did you hear the echoes of what God's work of creation was? Right. We know in in Genesis chapter 1 that darkness was over the face of the deep. Darkness is everywhere. That's all we have is darkness. And so what does God do? There's no light, absence of light. So God speaks and he says, let there be light. Or a better way to say it, light. (laughs) Exist light. And so there's light. It comes into existence. That's the beginning of God's work of original creation. Now, in God's work of new creation, of recreation, if you will, by means of redemption, by His Holy Spirit, God will convict a person who is blind by Satan, and He'll bring to that person's awareness, John 16, the fact that this person is a sinner, that this person does not meet up to the standard of righteousness that Christ has, that this person is someday going to stand and have a judgment before God, he is going to convict him of all those things, and he will impart into that person a new nature. And this person who used to love the darkness and who used to live in the darkness will now be a person who is transformed by the gospel of grace and by the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing them to new life in Christ. And guess what you have there, my friend? This is gospel light overcoming darkness forever. Forever. Because there's no such thing as a person losing their salvation. Contrary to who knows how many people who say that in Arminian churches. Because never again will any person who's truly born again by the work of God's Spirit ever lose their new nature in Christ. The light of saving grace can never be undone or overcome by the kingdom of darkness. Darkness. Now there, I could give you 25 verses on this. I'm just going to give you one. John 10, 28, because it's from John's gospel. What does he say here? This is Jesus speaking. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them what kind of life? Not temporary life, not life that only lasts for a short period of time. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand and you could add to that gazillion other verses that talk about the nature of regeneration and God's work of bringing people to life in Christ and the power of God to take people who are dead in sin and bring them into the light of fellowship with God and his people and so what i say to you my friend is this You should be encouraged to know that the darkness is not, did not in the past, is not, and will never overcome the light of Christ and his gospel. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, as we reflect on these truths about you as the light of men, Coming down from heaven, the unique one who is qualified to explain to us the spiritual realities of what it really means to know you and what it means to live for you and to enter into your life by faith. Lord, I pray that we might see that powerful light changing the way we think, changing hearts that need to be changed, Lord by your spirit. I pray that you would help some of us, Lord, who are seeking to bear witness to that light. We're a little timid and we're a little uh, perhaps intimidated (laughs) uh, because we don't want to cause offense. But, Lord, we know that uh, there's a cost to being a faithful witness. But, Lord, give us a zeal, give us a sensitivity, give us a love, a compassion for the lost. And, Lord, I pray that you would also help us to realize that we have hope in the gospel that Christ has come, showing and demonstrating a righteousness that we'll never ever have on our own. But that righteousness is a gift that comes to us in our salvation. So, Father, for those who are here this morning who've never seen a changed heart or who've doubted and wondered whether they truly are safe in Your arms, and if they're, if indeed Satan has overcome Your work, I pray, Lord, that You would help them to see that's impossible. It is possible to have maybe mistakenly assumed that a person has been regenerated. We all know that's possible, and then therefore they conclude later on it never did happen. But Lord, we thank you that there's nothing that will undo what you do to bring a person to true saving faith. Help us, Father, to be confident in you and confident in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.